We're going to jump into our message today. You can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, if you were getting coffee uh, my, b- before the service, my name is Micah. I'm the downtown campus pastor. I'm here periodically when Rod is away, and so I would love to meet you. I'll be out starting point following the service, um, and so if you don't find me, I am going to find you, all right? That's how it works, um, and so open your Bibles, Exodus 20. We are in a series called Top Ten. And what we're doing is we're looking at the Ten Commandments. We're starting in Exodus 20. We're working our way through the entire chapter, uh, one week at a time. And we are asking ourselves the question, number one, why is it that God is giving us these laws? But what do these laws mean for us? And what Rodney talked about last week and what I shared downtown is that these laws are meant to be something that protect us. They're meant to be something that guides us. They're meant to be something that we look at, and there's going to always be part of us that says, don't tell me what to do. But the reality is when we apply these laws to our life and we allow God to do something inside of us, it usually works out for our benefit, right? It usually works out for our good. It's like God knew what he was doing when he designed us and when he speaks to us and gives us These laws. And so, what I want to do to start the message this morning is I want to tell you the story of a woman named Charlotte. Charlotte is someone I've never met before. I found her story online. But she tells about how she met this guy named Daniel. She met him on a dating app, which is very common these days. And she found out that he was a tech entrepreneur from the West Coast looking to expand to the East Coast. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of wealth. It showed on his dating uh, page. And he messaged her. They started building a relationship, and he asked her out on a date. And so she reluctantly, being a 41-year-old woman, agreed. He was 37 at the time. And so uh, they set up a time to go on a date, and he didn't show up. And then he set up another time, and he didn't show up again. And so she was starting to think, hey, there's something different about this guy, like, Whatever, she was kind of annoyed by him, but at the same time, she was intrigued. And so he asked her a third time, hey, let's let's make this. I'm sorry for the other two. Like, let's do this thing. And so they went out on a date, went to this expensive restaurant. He paid for everything. And she said what happened was he love-bombed her. He showed her all sorts of affection. He, he cared for her. He seemed invested into her. He talked with her. He asked her questions. And, and he said, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting later on in life, and so, so I want to have a family. I want to have children, and I don't want to wait five years. I want to do it now, which to her was like, that's like music to her ears. In fact, it almost seemed too good to be true. And so as time went along, the, the relationship began to grow Uh, She saw his penthouse that he paid $6,000 a month for, um, and she eventually moved in with her, no, excuse me, he moved in with her, uh, and and on the weekends, they would go and look at these multi-million dollar homes, and he would invest into her this idea of this family that they would one day have. But all along the way, she would notice these little things. She'd notice a red flag where they'd go out with her family who she had had a difficult time with and there was sort of a, a falling out and so there was some tension and, and she, he, he pushed her to buy this expensive handbag for $3,000 and when it, it came time for him to pay, his card was declined and, and she had to pay for it. And she, she's like, oh, that's, that's different. And so then she, she took him and brought him to meet her dad who she had struggled with in her relationship. And within about 10 minutes, the dad started poking holes in his business and his story. And, and he realized that this guy isn't who he's saying he is. 
And he told her, he pulled her to the side and he said, hey, you need to dump this guy. He's a lying fill in the blanks, right? Like, like he just, he called it for what it was. And she said, you know what, Dad, I don't believe you. This guy has fulfilled so many desires in my heart. Like, you don't know him. And so she broke her relationship with her dad. She invested in this guy. And lo and behold, everything came crashing down. They went on a uh, vacation, and they racked up a $25,000 charge, and he couldn't pay it. And the hotel wouldn't let them leave until somebody paid the bill. And so she had to step up and pay the bill. She found out later that this guy had been married, had three kids, got divorced, and within six months, he was on a date with her. She found out that he owed over $120,000 of back support, and when she looked back and tallied up all the bills that she had to pay, she was in the hole $75,000. I forgot to say this, but she actually got married to the guy too, so she was on for everything. And what she realized is she got caught up in a romance scam. There's over 342 million people that use dating apps worldwide, and 40% of those relationships, 40% of them, somebody is going to ask the other person for money, meaning they're only there to get something from you. They're called romance scams. Last, or excuse me, in 2021, over $547 million were lost by U.S. residents alone to these scams. And over five years, it's $1.3 billion. When you look at these dating apps, one in 10 of the profiles are fake. And one in three people who have lost money, the relationship started on social media. Why am I saying this to you? Why am I sharing this information? Because when we come to the Ten Commandments, what we're seeing, God is doing the same thing to us that the father tried to do with his daughter. He's sitting down with us and he's saying, here are some laws that will protect your life. It will protect you from getting caught up in these romance scams. I heard Rodney talk about it last week. I talked about this downtown. When you look at the Ten Commandments, when you look at the laws and the covenant that God walked into with the Israelites, the thing that we have that's closest to help us understand the reality of what's happening in that relationship is a marriage contract. It's a marriage covenant. It's when two people give up themselves and they come into this relationship. They're entering into a covenant. And there's this element, as we'll see in a little bit, there's an element of romance that comes with it. And so what God is concerned about, like last week, you shall have no other gods before me. The reason he's saying that is because he wants exclusive rights to your heart. He doesn't want to share you with anybody else. And he knows that if we give ourselves to other gods, what's going to happen? We will create these idols. We will worship them. We will follow them. We will give ourselves to them. We will invest ourselves into them. And what will happen inevitably? Those things will disappoint us. They will let us down. And they will destroy us because they were never meant to be that thing to bring us that fulfillment. God knows only he can do it. And so he's going to begin the Ten Commandments by saying, you shall have no other gods before me. He knows that fake love produces false promises, and in the end, it will bring destructive results. So open your, you have your Bibles, Exodus 20, verses 4 and 6. That's where we're picking up today. The second commandment is this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You need to underline that in your Bibles. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's what's happening in this text. God is laying the groundwork to save us from these romance scams that the world is going to bring to us. He's trying to save us from these things that he knows we will put our ultimate, he knows we will put our hope in, we will put our trust in, that will only lead to our own destruction. He knows this. And so he says, hey, it's important that you give yourself to me exclusively. Think about a marriage, right? That's what they do. When two people engage in the covenant of marriage, they're saying, I will be with you for the rest of my life through thick and thin to death do us part. I am yours, you are mine. I have exclusive rights to you and you have exclusive rights to me. We're not gonna be bringing in uh, this person over here. It's you, it's me. That's what commandment number one does. But how many of you know, if you've been married more than 24 hours, you know that that's only the beginning, right? That, that making the covenant and sealing the deal, that's only the beginning of the relationship. You have the rest of your life where you have to figure it out. And so what's happening in command number two is he's not just reiterating what God said in, in the first commandment. He's saying, here's the deal. How you worship matters. How you give yourself to the other person, how you invest into the relationship, that matters. It's not just enough to say, I'm going to be in a monogamous marriage with this person. I'm going to give myself exclusively to this person. There's a lot of people that do that in our culture, and we look out and we can see the carnage. You can get step one right, but if you get the second one wrong, it can lead to the same results. And so what God is doing through Moses to the people is he's saying, it's not just enough to say that you follow me. It's not enough, just enough to say that you believe in me. What I need to see is actually help you understand what true worship looks like. And so he's going to do it by, by saying a few statements like you shall have no uh, graven images. You shall not bow down to them, right? You shall uh, not serve them. But he's going to do it. He's going to do it by revealing something about himself. One of the things we see over and over in scriptures is we don't see a lot of, we don't see a lot of this, this language of if you want to fix yourself, then here's X, Y, and Z. Here's how you do it. There's not a whole lot of that kind of stuff in scripture. What scripture does is it gives us a picture of who God is and says, basically, Micah, when you, when you get who God is, it's going to help you understand yourself. And when you understand yourself in light of who God is, that will change the way you see other people. What God is interested in doing is not just controlling your behavior so that you are a, a good husband or a good wife or a good son or a good daughter. What God is interested is he's interested in transforming your heart. Ezekiel 36 talks about this. It talks about how one day God would send this Messiah and, and he would take the hearts of stone and he would transform them into hearts of flesh. He would do what we cannot do. 
And so God is interested in your heart and in his mind and in his nature. He knows that how we worship matters. How we have a relationship with God really does matter. So let's break this first down. It says, do not make any graven images. If you use the language of Pastor Rodney, it's do not make sacred cows. Do not build, he probably talked about this last week, right? Do not build for yourself something and make it an ultimate, right? And, and practically what this means is, I have a little definition uh, that I wrote, okay? Uh, sacred cows are those things that we fixate on and have to have a certain way. And if it's not done our way, we take it personally and then we get offended uh, by them. They are points of control that we create in order to achieve our desired outcome. That's what a sacred cow is. They're points of control we create in order to achieve our desired outcome. And this can look literally like anything. I know, I know churches that have gone through, through battles because people wanted to get chairs like this instead of a pew. I know, I know churches that have gone through huge battles where people have actually left because they didn't like the color of the carpet square. They didn't like the song selection that the worship guy or the worship lady picked out that Sunday. And they take it personally, and, and instead of just being like, you know what, this is my opinion, and my opinion's what it is, and I'm not that big of a deal, so if you want to keep playing that music, that's totally cool, right? They take it personally, and they think, man, the, it has to be my way, because if it's not my way, th then it's almost like you're rejecting me. We get so emotionally wrapped up into our sacred cows that when something comes on the scene and confronts that thing in our life or challenges it or wants to change it, it's like we freak out inside. This is what happened to the Israelites over and over and over again. God was bringing them out of Egypt and he was taking them to a promised land where, where it, you know, he says it's flowing with milk and honey. It's something that's going to, I'm going to use to fulfill those needs for the longing of your heart. I'm going to give you liberty. I'm going to give you freedom. But all along the way, the people doubt God and, and they have these sacred cows that they're holding on to. What's crazy about this text is if you keep reading in Exodus, they have all these experiences with God. And, and while Moses is up on the mountain speaking to God, the people are going to take all the gold that they have, the gold that the Egyptians gave them back in Egypt, and they're going to build and do exactly what God commands them not to do. Hardly any time has passed since God has given these commandments and the people will already take their possessions and they will make their golden calf because that's the thing their heart and their mind and their soul is fixated on. We see this back then, but at the same time, it happens now. It happens in our church. And one of the things I love about our community is what we do is we major on the majors and we minor on the minors. One of the things I love about Pastor Chuck is if, if you ever need a reality check, if you ever have a sacred cow, he'll always say this statement. He'll always say something along the lines of like, we're here to worship Jesus. We're here to worship Jesus. Micah, we're here to worship Jesus. So what you're saying, like I get it, but don't take your eyes off the prize. Don't take your eyes off the thing that matters more than anything else. It's statements like that. It's people like that who have, a, who have a heart that just says, you know what? I love Jesus, and that's enough for me. If you're going to get frustrated about the carpet, that's fine. But, like, it's just not that big a deal here. 
What is it that you fixate on? What is that idol in your life that you have created so you can gain control in your life and in your circumstances? What is that idol? The second thing it says is don't bow down. This idea of bowing down, it's a picture of someone falling to their knees and, and, and bowing low to the ground with their arms stretched out, going down and up, worshiping something that has been created. They're, they're, they're putting them all of themselves, both socially and privately, they're putting it all on the line to worship the, this calf so that when people look at them, they see that thing they're giving their allegiance to. They see that thing that they're bowing down to, and it's a sign to them that this God is faithful, that this God is good, that this God is trustworthy. And God is saying, don't do that. Don't bow down to the idols that you make. Don't bow down to the idols of other cultures. Don't bow down to the idols that we have in our culture. Give yourself wholly to me. There's only one thing you should bow down to, only one person, and that's me. Well, not me, but you get, you get what I'm saying, right? See, what we have is this image of ourselves, and we say, this is what I want to become. And oftentimes, let's go back to marriage for just a second. Oftentimes what can happen as a marriage uh, carries itself out and there's one or both of the people in the relationship have an idol, what tends to happen is they begin to go their separate ways because their idol is leading them in different directions. It leads them in different directions to where now all of a sudden, a husband can look at a wife and say, man, she's really holding me back from achieving the things that I think I need to achieve. My kids are, are holding me back from achieving the things that I need to achieve. Or the wife can think, man, he's just not interesting enough anymore, and so it's, it's, I want to experience more in my life, and so he's holding me back from the things that I want to experience and I want to achieve in my life. And the relationship grows cold. Why does it grow cold? It's because both people or one of the persons are bowing down and giving themselves to an idol that was never meant to be. They're engaging in a romance scam. And so what it's doing is actually eroding the real romance that God has brought to their life. And so instead of having intimacy and so instead of having depth in a relationship, a relationship will go, grow cold and it will grow old, and in reality, what we do is we bow down to an image of ourself. What is it that I want out of life? I mean, I've only been around, well, I think it's like 33 or 34 years, something like that, and what I've learned since being married, I mean, I'm, I'm married to a redhead, so she lets me know right away, but one of the things I've learned is that that image that I have of myself, every single day, it has to die. It has to die. And the image that God is creating in me is one that involves a wife and three kids. And I'm never going to get away from that. Because that's the thing that God intends to make me who I am. In my mind, oftentimes, especially when we're younger, we have this idea of ourselves, I'm, I'm going to be Micah, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and then all of a sudden, it's like those things aren't fulfilled in our head, and we've been bowing down to that idea for so long, and God is trying to shift our perspective to say, Micah, you, what you got to see is that that's so narrow. That's so simple. And if you step back, that's actually so boring. I have all this for you, and it's going to refine you. It's going to shape you. It's going to mold you to be who you're meant to be. What I need you to do is follow me in obedience. 
What's our tagline? Obedience is hard, but disobedience is painful. God is asking us to be obedient in following him. The last thing it says is don't serve them. Don't serve these false gods that we create. Don't serve the false gods of other cultures. This one's simple. What is it you give your time to? What is it you invest into? What is it you work for? Are you working to build a healthy marriage? Are you working to become a better person so that when, when you catch the attention of that guy or, or you lock eyes with that girl, God is doing something in your heart and he's created a godly man or a godly woman to prepare you for them? Are you investing into your relationship with Jesus and serving him and bowing down to him and him alone? Or are you chasing after some sort of romance scam that you think will fulfill your heart? God knows us better than we know ourselves. The second point I want to give you today is that Yahweh is a jealous God. I think this is one of the most powerful verses um, in all of the Ten Commandments. They're all powerful, but there's something about this description of God that I think is is just life-changing. It says this, I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. In your Bibles, it'll say LORD in all caps, right? The Lord your God. That Hebrew word is Yahweh. It's the tetragrammaton. It literally means four letters. Y-H-W-H. There's no vowels because the Hebrew alphabet didn't have any vowels. And so they just, this is the name, not that the people gave to God, but it's the name that God gave to the people. It's the name he gave to Moses at the burning bush when, when Moses is conversing with God and, and God is telling him he's going to lead the people out of Egypt, right? Uh, he says, but Lord, who will I tell them has sent me? And, and God gives him this name. He says, I am that I am, Yahweh. I am that I am. I am the one who always was. I am the one who will always be. He tells them this is the name. This is the one who will lead them out of Egypt. This is when God gives them the name. But you know when he gives you and I this name? This is important. He gives us this name all the way back in Genesis 2. There's two names for God predominantly in the book of Genesis. Elohim, which means God. Right? And this is like our generic version of God. You could talk about a Hindu God. You could talk about the Muslim God. You could talk about the Christian God. Right? It's a generic. This is sort of like, the, the, this is like their version of the word God. Right? Very generic. Elohim. And when you read through Genesis 1, the author uses this word all of the time. This is the only word he uses to describe God. In the beginning, God, Elohim, he created the heavens and the earth. All of God's creative acts, it's Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. It's meant to describe deity. It's meant to describe something that is powerful. But where we see Yahweh mentioned first in our Bibles comes in Genesis chapter 2. And it, be, it, it comes into play when God begins to create human beings in his image. It's like it's, chapter 1 is this big picture. God's creating everything. Chapter 2, it's like he zooms in on the scene and he begins to unpack the reality of human existence. And this word, Yahweh Elohim, he's going to pair them together. It's used 11 times in this chapter. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at how God uses this language. It's language, uh, it's a name that God uses when he interacts directly with us. He's not just pulling a tree out of the ground. It's like now all of a sudden his focus is on you and his focus is on me. In verse 7, 
It says that he formed man. He took the dirt and he formed him into a man. Yahweh Elohim is going to function like a skilled artisan. He's going to be like, like a potter with his clay, and he's going to shape humanity. He's putting his hands into our existence. In verse 8, it's Yahweh Elohim. He's going to make for himself a home in the world he created, and he's going to call it Eden, which means delight. It means pleasure. It means joy. Think of those words. They're meant to... Stir something in our souls. It's meant to unpack something in our existence. Delight. It's something that's meant to be joyous. This is God's home that he dwells in, and he's going to put a home for humanity in a garden right next to it, and he's going to make it beautiful. It's appealing. It's alluring, and it's good for food. In verse 15, it's Yahweh Elohim, and he's going to take the man that he crafted, and he's going to give him a home. He's going to give him a place to belong. He's going to say to him, welcome home. And he's, he's going to take this man, and it's Yahweh Elohim. He's going to give the man co a command to eat. He's basically saying, dig in, amen? Like, this is a command from God. I have created all of this for you. It's beautiful to your eyes. It's, it's wonderful to your smell. It's great to the touch, and it tastes even better. So dig in. It's Yahweh who makes this for them. In verse 18, it's Yahweh who sees man alone. And it's Yahweh who decides to make a helper suitable for him. In verse 21, it's Yahweh who will cause a deep sleep to fall over Adam. And, and like a skillful surgeon, he's going to pull a rib out of his body. And then it's in verse 22 that this Yahweh will take the rib. And, and the author uses almost like the language of an engineer or a builder. And he's going to say, he's going to take this rib and he's going to build for him a woman. He's going to craft her and create her in a way that, that is not only just appealing to the man, but, but in a way that will bring glory to the one who created her. And then it says, Yahweh brought the woman to the man. That Hebrew word is bedvadvalef. He brought her to the man, and it's this idea, it's this picture where you have a man over here and you have a woman over here that, that Yahweh has created, and it's like he takes her hand tenderly in his, and he brings her. The Hebrew, it, it has this idea of leading. He's leading her to the man and bringing her as a gift to him, and he's receiving her as a gift from God himself. It's the idea of a father handing off her, his daughter in marriage. This is who Yahweh is. This is the God who is jealous for you. It's a God who is involved in our life. He's not far off and distant and silent whenever we go through something difficult. He's a God who is there in the mix. He's a God who created. He saw the loneliness in Adam, and so what does he do? He creates for him a wonderful gift and brings it to him. This is the God who is jealous. This is the heart this is the heart of that God. See, when we hear the word jealous, there's, we usually have this idea. It's, it's almost always a bad thing, right? Like all over Scripture, jealousy is, is a really bad thing. Like one time I, uh, before Christmas, I, I, we have this tradition of taking our daughters out to the store and they get to buy a toy for the other person. We thought, oh, what a great way to help them not think about themselves, but think about the other person. Well, lo and behold, my daughter figured out a way around that. 
okay? So we're in Marshalls, which is like the eighth wonder of the world, and we were shopping there, and I had Elsie, my seven-year-old, with me, and we're, we're looking at all the toys, and she's, her sole mission is to find a toy for Junie. And so we, we look through this one section of the toys. Uh, it's wonderful. They have like three different areas for toys. Kids love this place. Okay, and so we go to the second area. We don't find anything. We finally go to the third area, and there's this horse that, that she knows Junie will love. And it was, it was crazy. It was like it was sitting on the bottom shelf, and she goes, and she picks it up, and she's, she, her eyes light up. She's like, oh. And then all of a sudden, it changed in a second. She was like, hmm. her shoulders dropped. She looked at the toy, and then she put it back. And then she went over here, and she's like, oh, I think she'll like this. And she grabbed, like, the cheapest Barbie you could find, right? And I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. What's going on here? And what I realized in that moment is my daughter picks up this toy, and she was excited because she knew that her sister would love it. But in an instant, it was like original sin just spawned in her heart. And all of a sudden, she was just like, wait, if I give this to my sister then I have to see her play with it, and it's not mine. It was jealousy. It was all over her face. You could see it on her little seven-year-old face, right? And she puts it back, and, and she grabs something else that she doesn't really care about, that she knows Junie will love, that she won't have to compete with. That's, it's a seven-year-old mind, but how true is that of us? Jealousy is something over and over in the scriptures that's condemned. It's something that shows the nature of our heart and how what we end up doing is putting ourselves at the center of the world. And if it benefits someone else more than us, guess what? We get jealous of it. We don't want them to have that success. We don't want them to meet that person because we haven't met that person yet. We, we, we like it when we hear about other strife and marriages because it makes us feel better about our own relationship. We, 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 we want people to struggle because when they struggle, it means we're not alone. There, there's a jealousy in our heart that makes it so it's hard for us to see the success of other people. In fact, uh, there's a pastor in New York, his name's Tim Keller. He uses a great example. He says, when you look at the life of Saul, when you look at the life of Saul in the Bible, this is a guy who was appointed king by the people. Everybody loved him. And he meets this young man named David, and, and he's going through, Saul's going through this sort of almost like demonic oppression. And David comes into his courts, he plays the harp, and Saul loves this guy. I mean, he has deep affection for, for David, and, and David, it, every time he plays the harp, it's like the, the demonic just goes away, and he has peace again. And so this relationship's building, and, and there's no jealousy. They just love each other. But what happens is, I mean, you know the story, right? He fights, a, he fights a giant. David wins. Saul should have been out there on the battlefield. David goes instead, and all of a sudden, everybody starts to love David. The love shifts from Saul, and it moves to David, and all of a sudden, Saul finds himself in a place where he has what I would say is normal jealousy. It's understandable jealousy. Everybody loved him before, but that love is shifting to another person, and what does Saul do? He tries to kill David like five times. I think I'm even shorting that number a little bit, right? Like, like he tries to kill this guy over and over again. And it's this bizarre story of how Saul is just so jealous of David that jealousy drives him to insanity. To where now he's trying to kill the person whom he once loved. 
And here's how Tim Keller describes normal jealousy or a bad jealousy. Bad jealousy is described as when love has gone extinct. Write that down. Bad jealousy is when love goes extinct. It's when the love that people have for you has shifted to somebody else and now you're no longer the object and so you're, you're jealous of it because that was the thing that you were fixated on. You love the attention. You love what it gave to you. You love how it filled you up. But now that it's gone, it's like you have nothing. That God you've created of yourself has shifted away. And now it's like, just like Saul, we freak out in jealousy. I can't let someone else receive that thing that I want. The reality in Saul's life is that the love that people had for Saul was, was extinct probably a long time ago. And it was maybe never really there. But the love that he had for David was gone. And what that love was replaced with, this is how it works, right? This is how jealousy works. It's replaced with ourselves. It's replaced with pride. It's now all about us and what we want and what we can get out of the relationship. David was no longer useful for Saul. In fact, he was an enemy of Saul because he stole the love of the people. He was jealous. But this isn't the jealousy that God has. This is the jealousy you and I have, right? The jealousy that God has is very different. It's a jealousy that, yes, he wants exclusivity. Yes, he he desires to have you all to himself. But godly godly jealousy, godly jealousy is, is probably best defined this way. It's love that's going extinct. Godly jealousy is enacted when there's love at the center of a relationship and somebody realizes that that love is going extinct. It's like, think about like a a married couple who maybe they've lost a little bit of their intimacy. Maybe they haven't been spending the time together that they should have, right? Maybe, Maybe they've been following other idols or maybe they're just busy with life because having kids is tough. And maybe, right, maybe maybe they never, you know, maybe they just have a hard time having that relationship and so they're slowly growing apart. And one of them realizes, hey, the, something's happened in our relationship. We're not the same way we used to be. We don't laugh like we used to laugh. We don't have fun like we used to have fun. We don't talk to each other the way that we used to talk to each other. We don't flirt the way that we flirt anymore. And what they realize is there's something in our love that's going extinct. And so it's my duty and my job to fight for the love. Not just because it's what's best for me, because it's what's best for us. And so I need to do what I need to do in order to take care of the things that God has given to me. It's a jealousy that's rooted in love. It's a jealousy that keeps love at the center of it. When there's love at the center of the relationship and that's the thing you're fighting for, that's a jealousy that's godly. And that's what God is doing with the people. He's saying, I am a jealous God. And yes, that means I don't want to share you with anybody else because I know if you follow after them, the love that I have with you will be compromised and we will grow apart. We won't share intimacy anymore. The relationship will be broken. And so God is looking to invest time into the people. He's drawn them out of the wilderness and he's brought them to Mount Sinai to have conversations with them and to help them see who it is they're in relationship with. This isn't just like any other God who makes all these promises. This is Yahweh. This is I am. 
This is a God whose love, I mean, his, his name literally, it's almost like it's meant to mean consistent. He is the consistent one. His love will not change. The same love you see in Genesis 2 is the same love that motivates his jealousy for his people. It's not an insecure love of a man who's just desperately trying to fix something that he's broken 40 times in the past. It's a picture of a strong man who sees his lover or, or a, sees the other person in the relationship going their separate ways and he's doing something to bring it back. He's doing something to save it knowing that that's what both parties need. Here's why this matters so much. Here's why this idea of a jealous God is so critical for our life is because when we look at our own life, how many of you can say you know people and you've had relationships with people where the love is inconsistent? Maybe you were a kid and you were scared whenever dad came home because you were praying like, God, please help him not to have had a bad day. Because we know if he has a bad day, he's going to have a temper. We know he's going to oh, go to the bottle. We know he's going to do things that we don't want him to do. And yesterday was a great day and we had a lot of fun. But God, please. And you experience an inconsistent love. Maybe you were a kid and, and your dad walked out on you or your mom walked out on you and, and you thought there was this love that you had with them, but all of a sudden the relationship changed and you can't trust that anymore. It's a broken love in a broken world. It's, it's, a, it's a false romance. And we've put all our stock into these things and these relationships before, and all they do is disappoint us and let us down. God comes to us and he says, I'm not just any God. I am. I am the same God yesterday as I am today, as I'm going to be tomorrow. The love that I have for you, it does not change. When I come home, I will have the same love for you. I will discipline out of that love. I will, I will lavish blessing out of that love. I will make promises to you out of that love. And I will always invite you in to that love. It's the love of the father in the story of the prodigal son. It's the father who gets up off the porch and he runs to his kid. That love doesn't change. That God doesn't change. This is the God who is jealous for you. And what he knows about us is that we are easily swayed. And he knows that our hearts have been compromised, that there is sin in every single one of us. And we're chasing after these petty and silly and damaging romance scams. And he's coming to us and saying, I am here. I am the one that will fulfill you. I am the one that will lead you. I don't want to just save you from Egypt. I want to take you into the promised land. I want to fulfill your life. I want to give you the purpose that you've been looking for. I want to give you the meaning that you've been looking for. I want to give you the life that you've been looking for. But it's not going to be your way. What God requires, what Yahweh requires of us is radical obedience where we are willing to say, Lord, it's not my will, but your will be done. Where we come to him and we say, God, help me to trust you. My love is inconsistent with my family. My love that I've experienced has been inconsistent with me. And I need you. I need to trust you. I need to follow you. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to take my idols. Help me to throw them down before your cross so I can engage in your love. 
The last point I want to give to you before we close is loving God requires all of you. It requires everything. Jesus isn't just a part of your life. He is your life. He said to him, you shall, this is in Matthew 22, Jesus uh, is saying, we we talked about this last week, uh, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is what everything else is based off of. He's saying, love God with your entire being. I was sharing this with the class this last Wednesday. If you ever want like a little cheat sheet or or some behind the scenes information, come Wednesday night. We're going to be breaking this verse down even more than we are today. And what I shared with them is that this is an all of you text. What we do in the Western world is we, we compartmentalize every single thing about our life. We have work that we do eight to five, and then we have time we spend with our kids, and then we have time we spend with our spouse, and then we have time like today where we spend time fasting and praying for the 49ers to win at two o'clock. Like, Lord, please be with Brock Purdy, right? Like, Jesus, we need, we need you. Um, and thank you. Thank you for uh, all the Viking fans. Like, I'm just, I love you guys still, all right? But like we spend our time, we compartmentalize all these things in our life. But when you go back to the time uh, when the Bible was written, when you go back to the Jewish culture, uh, even of Jesus' day, they didn't compartmentalize like we do. In fact, their idea of, of like, we, we kind of break things up in our mind. We, you know, we, we, have, we have like our soul, right? And then we have our body, and then we have our mind, and we have all these different categories that we use to describe ourselves. In the Jewish mind, it was all one. They didn't break things off into little pieces and the little parts. It was your being. Everything you were belonged to God, which means, guess what? Your diet affects your spirituality. How you work affects your spirituality. How you interact with your family, it affects your spirituality because everything is spiritual. Everything involves your relationship with God. There is no time in your life when you follow Jesus where you're separate from him. You don't compartmentalize him over here and and, and say, Jesus, I'm going to hang out with you on Sunday or Wednesday or my Bible study. He's a part of everything in your life. I just got a Y membership and I'm working out again and it really stinks, right? But it's deeply spiritual. That's the irony of this, right? It's deeply spiritual. When you sing songs in your car and you're listening to Caleb, it's spiritual, when you're rocking to ACDC, it's spiritual people, right? Like, like when you're eating food and you're feasting with your family, it's spiritual. Everything apart, every fiber in your being emanates the image of God. It's who you are. And it's all spiritual. He requires all of you, not part of you. He doesn't just want you to say, yes, Jesus, I'll enter this relationship with you. He, it's... A, It's great that you got the Jesus part right. But if you're going to avoid the romance schemes of this life, you have to give him everything, knowing that he's the one who will never let you down. Right? You got to give him all of you. It's like a cheesy John Legend song. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. Oh, we thank you that you are a jealous God that you love us, that you care for us, that you're not just some insecure person fighting for love, but Lord, you know who we are, you know what we need, and you give it to us. So help us to trust you. Lord, help our love to be more like yours, creating us a consistent love. 
A love that doesn't waver based upon what happens at work or what happens at home, but a love that is consistent, a love that is like you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.